Well, last week we were in chapter 10 of the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, this week we move into chapter 11. Chapter 10 came to us with a, uh, a word of caution against folly. And, and now as, as we look to chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 specifically, I think your bulletin might read chap- verses 1 through 8. We shortened it a little bit after press time there. Uh, but verses 1 through 6, uh, we see the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes encouraging us to act. So kind of on the one hand in chapter 10 is urging us to caution. Now it's urging us to act. Uh, but we are to act wisely uh, and not to have our inclination to avoid folly cause us to do nothing. And so uh, as we turn to Ecclesiastes 11 verses 1 through 6, let's ask God's blessing upon our time together. Lord, we, we just ask that you would speak to us now. Speak to us in your word, through your word, by your word, for it is living and active. It is, it is powerful and strong. And uh, through your word, your purposes can be made effective. So we pray that that would be the case today. Change us and mold us and make us into your people more perfectly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along now as I read from Ecclesiastes 1, or 11, verses 1 through 6. This is the inspired word of God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. This or that, or whether both alike will be good. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, in today's text, we see the the preacher reinforcing one one of the main points, I think, that he's made throughout Ecclesiastes. We've seen it time and time and time again. That is quite simply this. Life under the sun is to be lived by faith. Of course, this is not a a thought that is peculiar just to Ecclesiastes. It's not peculiar just to the Old Testament, of course. We, We look in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says... We walk by faith and not by sight. 
It's important if we're going to understand this principle of walking by faith that we understand what faith is. Especially in our day, in our age, in our culture, many would use that term very loosely, very broadly, uh, as just kind of a generic term for religion. But, but when the Bible talks about faith, it is not talking about uh, some generic religious belief. It is talking about trusting in God, depending upon God, and not just any God, but the God who is, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who is God, regardless of what we believe. Trusting in him, depending upon him, acknowledging our inability, and trusting in his ability. And if we have this mindset of, of living by faith as opposed to living by sight, it helps us to better understand this passage, I think, especially in verse 1 where it reads, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. It would be very easy for us to look at that and say, This is a very odd saying. I do not understand what it means. But I think as we understand the idea of living by faith, it becomes a little more into focus. I, have, you ever, have you ever thrown bread into water? You know, maybe you were feeding ducks or, or whatever, maybe just tossing bread into water. Have you ever done that? If, you, if you've ever done it, you, you've got kind of a picture in your mind. Now, let, let's say you're throwing it not just in a, in a lake, but in a river or, or in the ocean. And you throw it in. Would, would you expect it to find its way back to you? Probably not. Probably not. And, and even if it did find its way back to you, would you use that bread after a couple days in the water to make a sandwich? I'm guessing not. The bread's not really, I wouldn't expect it to come back to me. If it did, it, it's not good for anything. What, what is the point here? Well, some commentators have suggested things that I thought were kind of odd. For instance, uh, some of them suggest that perhaps what's in view here is as Solomon is speaking, he's, he, he has in view the idea of, of grain trade overseas. Okay, that he's, he's talking about trading grain that's used to make bread and sending it overseas. And, and we do see that, that during Solomon's reign, Israel had, had more international trade of this sort than they had at any time, probably before or, or since during, during the Bible. And we we look at it and we say, well, maybe that's what he's talking about. And the idea here is that, that sending it overseas is, is, is kind of a risky and, and dangerous thing. You know, the sea was seen as a, a foreboding entity at that time. And so, so it's calling us to live by faith because you have to trust that it's going to work out, even though it might not. And, and then when we read uh, verse 2, give a portion to 7 or even 8. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. We, we could say, well, maybe it's saying, take a chance. Take a chance. Be willing to take chances in life, like saying, yeah, but, but don't be a fool, right? Don't be a fool. Don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket, we might say in our, in our uh, vernacular. Divide it up, right? So if you're looking at this idea of sending grain overseas and trading it, you know, split it up among seven or eight ships and send it out in different directions. That way, if a ship goes down, uh, then 
then you know you won't lose all your goods. In essence, be bold, but diversify. Right? It's kind of the the idea that these commentators said, and and there is wisdom in that. There is wisdom in that for sure. We here in the Flint area know better than most the the troubles that can come with failing to heed such an admonition to diversify. Right? Because for many decades here in this area, the the, the community prospered exclusively almost on the strength of, of General Motors and the automotive industry, right? And, but, but when those General Motors jobs disappeared, the, the community had very hard times that it fell upon. You, you certainly want to not have all your eggs in one basket, as it were, because if the basket fails, then you're in trouble. Well, if we understand Solomon to be talking about such things, <clears throat> basically, uh, we, we can see that, that there is some wisdom in that. But I don't think that's what he's talking about, regardless of what certain commentators have said. I, I lean more, <clears throat> excuse me, I lean more in the direction of, of what Martin Luther has to say about this passage. When Martin Luther hears the the preacher's words, cast your bread upon the waters. He, along with many medieval Jewish commentators, understood the term to mean, give your bread to those who are oppressed. Give your bread to those who are in need of it. <clears throat> Quite simply, it's a, a clarion call to the people of God to exude a generosity that is exhibited through efforts of providing for those who are not able to provide for themselves. And if we understand this admonition as such, we can say fortunately for us there is no shortage of people who are in need, who we can heed the call, that we can serve, that we can, we can assist, we can give to as individuals and as a church. I think that, that, that we need to understand it in both terms. We don't want to ever shorten it to one or the other, right? We want to understand the, the need to reach out to people as individuals, but we also want to do it corporately as a church. And, and, and that's a starting point, a point of reference. I, the actual giving of, of money or giving of bread or giving of, of, of food or, or, or giving of whatever is needed to, to people who are in need, certainly, uh, certainly that's a starting point. But I think what God actually wants at the end of the day is not just uh, a, a handing over of physical resources. I think what he most wants, what he's most concerned about, is our hearts. He's most concerned about our hearts. He, he doesn't just want us to give. He wants us to want to give. He wants us to have a change in our heart. He wants us to to have a mindset and a, a direction to our life that is, is longing to serve others, that is longing to help those who are in need. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is not like some tax that he has levied upon us that we have to, on April 15th, write a check and turn it over right, begrudgingly and say, oh, I wish I didn't have to. No, he wants us to longingly serve others, lovingly serve others, to, to want to give of ourselves and of our gifts 
and of our finances, of our talents, of all that we have. But beyond giving, we read in verse 1, this cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. I think it's carrying that sense of doing something for God and trusting him even for those things that seem impossible. Take a chance for God. Take a chance for the kingdom. Reach out in faith, even when it doesn't seem like it's the, the, the most safe thing to do. From a purely financial perspective, giving money to the poor doesn't seem like a, a wise investment strategy, right? You, know, you, you probably aren't going to get a, a big return on that investment financially. But what he's saying here is it will pay off. It will pay off. Now, now I want to make a note, <clears throat> a couple notes actually. When I say it will pay off, I want to understand it in the right terms. First of all, we, we want to understand that this is not a matter of, of putting the Lord to the test, as it were. We, we are not to say, well, you know, we don't really trust God, so we're going to do this to kind of test him to see if he really is trustworthy. That's not ever what we ought to do. And furthermore, it's not an investment strategy that he's interested in, in giving us here. I, I hear some people who proclaim to be preachers sometimes talking in this way. You'll see it, you know, televangelists especially. Uh, and, and they'll turn to passages like Luke 6, 38 and say, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And, and they say, you see there, if you just, you know, give me $20, you'll get $40 back. You know, I, I'm not sending it to you, but somebody will, right? Is kind of the idea. And, and that's not what God is saying to us. I don't want you to think when, when he says he will repay or it will be paid back or these things, that, that this is something where he's saying this is the best investment strategy. That's not what he's saying at all. In Luke 14, later on, we see Jesus say, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I think what he's saying there when he says you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just is your whole life will be laid bare. You'll, you will look at all the actions that you have done throughout your life. You'll, you'll see how you have lived your life. And when you look back over the course of your life as you stand there before a holy God, would you not rather be able to look at your life and see, I did this for God. I did this out of love for him, fueled by his love for me? Or would you rather look back at your life and just say, well, it was all about me. I did everything I could with me, 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 me in sight. Of course, we would rather be able to look back and know that we have served him and be encouraged by that and, and understand and experience the blessing that is in that. And so he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. 
You know, the idea here, the number seven, the number of perfection, the number of completion. So therefore, when he says give it to seven or even to eight, I, I think what he's saying is, he's saying give generously, give, give fully, give perfectly. And then give a little more beyond that even, right? He's saying give, give to everyone and then give a little bit more. That seven or eight, that's the idea. And what's the rationale he gives? Well, he says, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, when we first read that, perhaps we say, well, wait, that doesn't seem to jive with how I would normally think. You know, give to others because we don't know what kind of disaster is going to happen. You know, there might be some kind of disaster. It would seem to me that my normal course of actions would say, if there's going to be a disaster... Uh, the good advice there is save up, right? Keep, keep everything you have because there might be a disaster and you might not be able to get any more, so you better, better save up what you have now. Don't, don't give it to others. My goodness, that's foolishness. Well, I think it's largely has to do with how self-centered we are, how self-oriented we are, doesn't it? Because, because if my response to it, there might be a disaster, is to say, well, I better hoard up everything for me, then that reveals the fact that my primary concern is me. But if instead my mindset to there might be a disaster is, well, this is an opportunity to help others, then that shows a very different mindset, does it not? The preacher seems to be saying something akin to, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's famous words, right? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so, so he's urging us to love, love others well, serve others, love others, give generously. In Luke 12, we read, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In Deuteronomy 15, you shall give to the poor freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Now let's be clear. Our motivation in giving ought not to be to manipulate God, right? You know, if I give, God says here, you know, if we're generous to the poor, the Lord will repay us. So, so I'm going to give to make God repay me. So that, that kind of I have him in my debt. As if that were ever possible. Right? Our motivation for giving is because the God who is telling us to give is the God who has given all for us. The God who is telling us to love is the God who has so fully loved us. The God who is telling us that we must do this has already shown us through his own example. We follow Christ humbly because he first humbly served us. And so we follow him out of a confidence that he can be trusted because he has demonstrated his trustworthiness. For he was willing to serve us to the end, to love us to the end, to go the distance for us. He not only took on human flesh, but went to the cross and laid down his life to pay the debt for our sins. The eternal God, the creator of all things, entered into 
his creation. He became as one of us and even subjected himself to death. He did so to pay our penalty, to, to pay our price. He, he has shown us his great love in this and we should love him as he has loved us. And so we serve him by, by giving to others, by giving to the poor, certainly financially, but also by giving to ministry efforts that we might reach not only the physically poor, the financially poor, but the poor in spirit, that they might too know this truth of this sacrificial, serving, loving Christ. You see, the, the church has always been meant to have an outward focus from the very beginning, from the call of Abram when he was called out. God said he was calling him that he might be a blessing to others, that all the people of the earth might be blessed through him. And so it is that, that we exist to be a blessing to others. That's, that's why we, we have missions at the center of what we do right now. Uh, our session is in the process of, of coming up with a, a vision and understanding kind of the vision of the church and, and, and how we want to move forward. And we're working through this and prayerfully considering things and discussing them and wrestling with them. But, but in the process of this, we, we've discussed a little bit about, about missions and its need to be central to who we are. And we've discussed what, what therefore it means in terms of, of, of our spending as a church. What does that mean and how we, how we spend funds? What portion of our budget should, should be dedicated to, to leaving this church, to going other places, right? Not just spending on, on salaries and light bills and, and donuts and, and these different things, but spent on building the kingdom of God outside of our walls, going out to our neighborhoods, going out to our states, to the region, to the, to the country, through, throughout the world. What portion should we spend on that? We've been discussing this at, at great length. We'll continue to do it, but, but whatever amount we come up with, it should reflect a, a missional mindset, a mindset that says we are on mission to go out, that we, we heed the Lord's great commission to make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and to the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, heeding, heeding his word to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, our generosity needs to extend to our witness. We've been given a great gift, and so we need to share it with others. Now, there are a couple things that sometimes get in the way of our of our generosity and we, we become more selfish in our mindset and the rest of this passage I think speaks to these. In verse 3 we see sometimes things that we can't control get in the way, right? We worry about the, we've got these things we can't control like, like if the clouds are full of rain and they empty themselves on the earth. You know, yesterday was, was a rainy day. It was supposed to be the day for district playoffs in baseball in, uh, in Michigan. And, and many baseball games got canceled yesterday. Some got delayed, some got postponed, but, but it's because the rain fell. And, and boy, it would have been great if they would have just been able to say, well, let's find a way to stop the rain. We can't stop the rain. When the rain comes, 
it comes. We can't control it. Any more than we control if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where it falls, there it will lie, right? We can't just make it as it's falling say, stop! Don't fall there. No. We can't guarantee that giving to the poor will cause that to be used wisely, right? In the same way, we, that, that, that's a thing we can't control. And yet God calls us to do so, to give to the poor, to give. Because, again, he's concerned as much about our hearts as he is about the end product of giving. And in the same way, we can't control who is saved by the gospel that we proclaim to the nations. We go out, we take it to people, and, and we can't guarantee that they will be saved by that. Jesus talks about this in a, a parable in Matthew 13. It's also in Mark 4 and, and Luke 8. But, but he speaks about somebody sowing seeds. And the seed, he says, is the word of the kingdom. And, and some of the seed is sown along a path. But whenever anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the devil, comes and snatches it away. And then there's other seeds that are sown on rocky ground. And they, they start to grow up. But they have no roots, no depth. And so they're like those who, who don't have a rooted faith and when trials come their way when tribulation and persecution arises that they immediately fall away then there are seeds that are sown among the thorns that those are like the one who hears the word of god but but it is quickly choked out by deceitfulness and riches of the world and it proves unfaithful but then there is the seed that is sown in fertile good soil this is the one, he says, who hears the word and understands it and, and indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another 60 and another 30. The idea is that, that there are some who will respond. We don't know which one's going to be which. Right? So we, we share the truth. We can't control the outcome. We liberally spread the word of God so that some might fall on good soil and they would know the truth. Another thing we sometimes are stopped by is our worries. We worry about things, don't we? Verse 4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And farming weather is very important, is it not? And, and, and it's a lot easier to farm in good weather than bad weather. And so sometimes a farmer, he says, might look at the weather and say, Ah, it's not quite perfect today. I'll wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow's not quite perfect either, and the next day's not quite perfect. And next thing you know, the season for planting is gone, and it's too late because you've been waiting for the perfect day, and, and, and you worried about it all this time, observing this wind. You know, I want it to be a little less windy today. We do this with life too, don't we? We, we, we resist stepping out in faith. We don't, we don't step out because we're like, well, maybe it'll be a little easier tomorrow. Or maybe the conditions will be a little bit better tomorrow. Maybe I'll have a, a better opportunity tomorrow so, so I won't step out in faith today. Our worries can keep us from trusting in God. But Jesus says, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious, he says. He says, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is what he calls us to. One final thing that gets in our way of trusting God and, and, and of giving generously is mystery, right? 
I want to understand it. I want to understand everything perfectly. I want to have it all detailed and figured out. If I don't understand it, I, I just can't really trust God sometimes. Verse 5 is you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Right? He says, he says you, you don't understand this, right? The, the way the Spirit comes in. And, and the word spirit there can actually mean spirit or breath. And, and maybe... Maybe he chose that word as a double meaning intentionally, right? We, we don't understand exactly how the Spirit of God works, how, how it inhabits us. We, we likewise, especially in that day, even more than today, didn't understand exactly how, how the life comes, physical life comes into a, a, a baby in the womb. And so it is certainly true that we don't understand the work of God always. There are those things that we don't understand. Why, why is God doing it this way? You face a trial in your life. You face, you face a difficulty and, and you say, okay, maybe I understand, God, you're, you're doing something here, but, but, but why? I, I don't understand it. How can you possibly be, be working through this terrible thing that's happened in my life? How can you possibly be at work here? I, I don't get it. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things that, that are above the line that we don't get to see. We're called to trust in a God who is greater than us, which is a good thing because we wouldn't want to trust in a God that we could completely apprehend. Don't allow the unknown or the unknowable to paralyze you. One commentator put it this way, he said, truly our knowledge is severely limited, but we are fools if we permit this ignorance to reduce us to impotence. Right? We know not how God is working sometimes. But even in light of all these things, the things we can't control, the things that cause us to worry, the things that we find mysterious, preacher tells us in verse 6, in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. You do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether they both. Four times in these six short verses, the preachers reminded us, you do not know. And yet he urges us, get to work. Get to work. Sow your seed. This should not get in the way the fact that we do not know, still act. Likewise, it should not get in our way as we receive the grace of God and the spiritual nourishment that allow us to live by faith. There are, there are things that we can't control, but we know that we have a God who is in control of all things. And there are things that causes us to worry, but God, who is faithful, assures us that he indeed is working in and through all things. And there are things that are mysterious, but those are those secret things of God. A God who is mysterious, admittedly. Right? We can't fully comprehend what exactly is all involved in the Trinity. Right? One God in three persons. The math doesn't add up in my mind. Yet I trust that that's who God is. Two natures of Christ, again, in one person. 
He is fully God and fully man. The fact that God is divinely sovereign over all things, and yet I am responsible when I fail to follow him faithfully. And God is mysterious in this table. He's mysterious in this table. There is a way in which he is spiritually present there that he is not otherwise. There is a way in which we are spiritually nourished when we partake of this meal in faith. And we cannot fully explain what and, and how and all the mechanics of what God is doing in this meal. But we do know that it is more than just a token, more than just a symbol, more than just a, a mere memorial observation. For as we partake of this meal in faith, by the working of the Holy Spirit, the bread and the cup become effectual means of grace. Do you have faith? Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone? Do you long for spiritual nourishment? Do you, do you hunger and thirst for it? Do you desire the grace of God? If so, then come to this table. Come to this table because it is what God has provided for us. Before we do that, though, you'll find in your bulletin the Apostles' Creed printed there. The Lord has given his table to his people, to those who trust in him, those who rely upon him, those who depend upon him. The Apostles' Creed lays out what that looks like.